Wake up, my little boy. My boy, wake up. You're sleeping, my little boy. Don't tell me you're dead, my boy. That's the heartbreaking sound of a mother mourning her son. He was a protester in the Bolivian town of Sacaba, demonstrating against the right-wing government of Janine Añez that assumed power in last year's coup. He and at least 35 others were killed, with hundreds more wounded in the state-backed violence and repression that followed. Bolivia's indigenous population has long been repressed. It's the white descendants of Europeans who held the cultural, political, and economic power in the country. But after years of organizing, they achieved a breakthrough. Juan Evo Morales Ayama, political activist and son of poor farmers, became the country's first indigenous president. Along with his MAS, or Movement Towards Socialism Party, Morales presided over unprecedented growth and development in South America's poorest country. Indigenous culture experienced a renaissance as the economy rapidly expanded and the native majority lived with a new sense of pride and dignity. But not all were happy with this reversal of fortune. Capital, both foreign and domestic, objected to Morales' left-wing policies. The elite resented their loss of influence, and Washington was incensed as Morales formed alliances with Venezuela, China, and other socialist powers. One year ago, these forces, led by the United States, achieved their long-held goal of removing Morales from the presidency. Today, these two powers, the right and the moss, the rich and the poor, the elite and the people, struggle against each other. talking with Wyatt Reed of Sputnik, producer of the podcast By Any Means Necessary, also a contributor to Grey Zone. Uh, he's on the ground in Bolivia. How many people from the international press are there currently? From the international press, it's hard to say. I know of a, a number of, of journalists who are here. And there's certainly many more sort of mainstream corporate journalists uh, that are here as well from the kind of bigger outlets. The latest I'm hearing is that Camacho, Luis Fernando Camacho, is reiterating that he is not going to drop out. He thinks he's going to win in the first round. What is the support like for Camacho currently? Camacho has fairly marginal support. And, and to be honest, I wouldn't say that I think that he, uh, I wouldn't say that he thinks he's going to win. It's, he would have to be uh, living in a fantasy world to believe that no credible poll has given him support much higher than 10, 15%. There's very little popular support behind Luis Fernando Camacho outside of the extremely 
white, wealthy city, the region of Santa Cruz. His, as best I can tell, the perspective of the Luis Fernando Camacho campaign, they're not in it to win it. They're in it to achieve sort of a, a tie-breaking role in which they could potentially win enough Senate votes or rather enough senators in the Senate to negotiate a position for Luis Fernando Camacho in a potential Carlos Mesa administration or simply within the Senate. As it stands, the movement to socialism has, is expected to receive just about half or slightly over half of the Senate positions. So this was 18 to 20, as polls in the past week have been showing, out of a total of 36 senators. The rest would be split largely, mostly with Carlos Mesa. And then the party of Luis Fernando Camacho is projected to win around four. This is, again, a, a sort of a marginal number, but it would be in some circumstances enough for him to have uh, a clout and to be able to get a position and keep it. He was given sort of position under the Anya's administration, supposedly interim government, but that was subsequently taken away from him. And I think that may be part of the reason there's no love lost between Luis Fernando Camacho and the, and the current Anya's administration, which is going all in on behalf of Carlos Mesa, like almost all of the right-wingers. So it's sort of a strange political dynamic and one that points to, I think, a larger dynamic that has long plagued the right-wing, which is the sort of inability of the right-wing politicians to see the forest for the trees in a way that in the past 10 months, we've seen this total reconfiguration of the MAS into a, a significantly more organic political structure. Hmm. And there's just a, a more of a sense uh, from my perspective and from what I've heard that on the left, people are sort of willing to put their personal beliefs aside in the interest of retaking power. It is a hard core of support behind Camacho. People who tend to support Camacho, they would consider both the Moss and Carlos Mesa to be unacceptable. Is that right? Yeah, that's... Uh... Not too far off, although realistically speaking, uh, it's, it's difficult to say exactly. Mesa's support base isn't in Santa Cruz. It's not in Benny, like Janine Añez. It's in La Paz. It's in the western part of the country, and it's with the wealthier and whiter groups here. So we're talking about different groups with, with different constituencies, who largely, at least uh, where I am here in La Paz, have been willing to sort of put their differences aside in the interest of trying to keep um, the MAS out of power. And this is a political dynamic that I think we can observe, not just in Bolivia, but in Nicaragua and Venezuela, mm. a number of countries where the right wing has been forced to take a back seat. Ultimately, it's very difficult for politicians who may not represent a a, a meaningful platform in some ways or a, a or may not be able to articulate a, a platform that speaks to the vast majority 
they have a, a difficult time taking a back seat to anyone, it seems. But obviously, there's still two days before the election. Anything is possible. But as it is, it seems like there's a very significant chance for Luis Fernando Caracho to play a spoiler role here and in some ways potentially help the MAS uh, return to power if we do not see um, the kind of voter fraud that I'm hearing a lot of concerns about from the left, specifically the, the idea that we already know there have been attempts in Argentina, in Chile, and other countries where there are large concentrations of the Bolivian diaspora to essentially suppress the vote is how it seems to uh, it, be this through ways that we in the United States are accustomed to in terms of changing ballot locations, removing voters from registries. Mm. Uh, a lot of this has been happening in the exterior of the country. And we've seen a lot of denunciations of this from the Bolivian diaspora, which is largely left-leaning. We have to think about who is it that had to flee the country? Who is it that is most likely to be forced uh, to leave out of economic necessity? Well, it's going mm -hmm. to be the working class people, the people who are most likely to support the party who they see as having their best interests at heart. Do you find that the sense among people is basically, uh, is very much uh, dependent upon their party, on who they support? Is there a broad recognition that Avo's party could win this in the first round or not? I definitely agree. Um, there is, uh, or I would agree with the sentiment that essentially what you hear is going to be largely dependent on where you're at um, and who you're speaking with. In El Alto, for example, there is a great deal of encouragement, a great deal of excitement. People have the sense that a mass victory may not be inevitable, but is very likely. There's also a great deal of anxiety because there is a real sense that this government came into power, this right-wing supposedly interim government came into power basically as a result of the right-wing's inability to offer a real way forward for the country I get a lot of the sense from many people that if the right wing in this country was able to win at the ballot boxes, then that's what they would do. But as history over the past 14 and uh, now 15 years has shown, doesn't seem to be the case. So what I'm hearing is this is a government who ostensibly will stop it very little to or will stop it nothing potentially to keep themselves uh, in power that are maybe less willing to respect the electoral results. When we look at what happened last year, it, it's becoming increasingly clear that the electoral results were not respected. Now, this isn't sort of mm -hmm. personal speculation. This is a result that has been confirmed by numerous studies by the Center for Economic Policy and Research by the MIT's election lab, by multiple researchers there. Even the Washington Post and the New York Times are now sort of openly referring to what happened in November last year as a coup. Perfect timing on their part. Certainly kind of auspicious. It makes me wonder where they were last November when those of us who were on the ground in Bolivia were reporting on the persecution of 
leftist activists, journalists, and basically anyone who's perceived uh, as being a potential threat to the status quo. Uh, they were no, nowhere to be found. Um, all of a sudden, they, I think it reflects more about those media outlets than it does about the actual reality of the situation that they had this sort of change in tune. Because for many observers, it, it was pretty clear that the OAS sort of pronunciations about fraud were premature at the very least. And ultimately, it seems led to a significantly less democratic outcome than if they hadn't uh, intervened in that situation. Uh, so if Mas does manage to take back power in this upcoming election, how much confidence do they have in sort of picking up where they left off, you think? Or how much of a spoiler role uh, can the right wing still play as a minority to stifle their overall plans? What is, do, have you been able to get any sense of that if there's anxiety of that or if they're just or if they're just like oh if we get this election we're just going to like it's just going to take off like a rocket like nothing happened yeah i don't think that's the case the current government has will have left whoever comes to power with a serious economic crisis the worst economic crisis bolivia has seen in decades uh, not to mention the ongoing public health crisis of coronavirus these are both things that have to be dealt with seriously the proposed solution by the Janine Anya's administration is to accept a $300 million IMF loan. And this is an echo of how Carlos Mesa ultimately ended up funding teachers' salaries almost two decades ago when he was in power. There's always um, an IMF loan in these Latin American countries. It's the one-size-fits-all solution, that's for sure. Hmm. Sweet terms on it, though, you know? Famously, uh, a few months ago, an administrator of a meme page on Facebook, I believe it was just a teenager, was arrested for sedition against the government, I think was the charge. What kind of repression is going on now, from what you can tell? How much open repression? Are people still uh, being arrested for posting spicy memes against Anya's? Yeah, that uh, was certainly an interesting case. I'm struggling to remember the specific name of the meme page, but I don't know exactly who you're talking about. That was the norm for a while. And the political repression, in my mind, hasn't abated necessarily. It's not extended, I think, quite as freely to non-politicians, potentially. But it seems to many that there is a real political motivation behind the dozen charges that have been filed against, for example, the Cochabamba senatorial candidate, Andronico Rodriguez. Evo Morales himself faces numerous charges, which those on the left will say are kind of a, a method of political persecution, uh, a way of uh, isolating the leaders of the party and of preventing them from circulating freely and from campaigning freely. I, I would say in that aspect, we have seen probably a recalibration of the willingness to persecute people with little real influence, but that could simply represent sort of a, a <laughs> newly acquired awareness of a kind of uh, real politic, if you want to, if you want to put it that way, rather than a a change in sort of moral posture. 
Obviously, this is speculation. I can't say exactly what is motivating this government, but I can say what those who I've spoken with have said, which is that this is a kind of a political witch hunt uh, continues to be carried out against uh, those who are perceived as potentially really, uh, if, if you hear some people say it as, as potentially bringing those who have carried out so much of what we've seen over this past year to justice. That is a sense that I get everywhere I go in El Alto that the right wing is not willing to cede power because they know that if they did, that they would be held to account and likely jailed many of them. Uh, mm. Those especially who are seen as being responsible for the worst of the violence that was carried out in the immediate aftermath. I'm talking specifically about the massacres in Sankata and Saikawa. We have seen quite a bit of political repression, at least me personally, when I was here in November last year, I saw firsthand sort of the kind of willingness to, to prevent any real resistance from taking hold to the government. I don't know that has abated. And if you listen to many of those here in El Alto, they will tell you otherwise. But it's impossible to say exactly what any one particular faction is willing to carry out. I think we just have to look at the historical record. What is the media scene in the country like currently? Famously, there was video of Camacho telling journalists that they need to be on his side, on this interim government side, shortly after the coup last year. Is, would you say the government is essentially exerting control over the media? Does the corporate media side with the government just as a matter of their own interests? And how much has uh, independent media kind of been able to be built back up since the coup? That's certainly the sense that I get from uh, most of the people I talk to in El Alto. The phrase Prensa Vendida is thrown mm -hmm. around a lot, sort of the sellout press. I saw today on my way down a, a banner hanging up on the highway coming down from El Alto to La Paz saying Prensa Vendida, Prensa Vendida, mm -hmm. sellout press. And this was a very popular phrase last year in November. We saw essentially a takeover of many outlets perceived to be left-leaning, perceived to be sympathetic to the mass, outlets that were affiliated with unions, but were headquartered in areas controlled by the right wing, had their journalists either brought over to the right wing or in many cases were simply fired or marched out of their offices. And in one particular case, I remember a, the director of a, a union radio station was literally tied to a tree and assaulted and berated by anyone who cared to do so. I think that was a fairly clear indication of the kind of attitude that was taken in regards to press freedom. Student journalists sort of arbitrarily detained and, and incarcerated. A, I think that this has abated in part because there simply are just so few remaining kind of left-leaning media outlets. So that kind of repression wouldn't necessarily uh, be helpful as it stands. You, you kind of, you turn on a TV, virtually every station is going to be sympathetic to the line that the government is putting out. Uh, there's not a lot of space for people to challenge these narratives. And I can't say exactly what, that this would all change in a perfect 
inversion if the other if the election were to go the other way because just from what i hear from uh people on the ground here this kind of pressure in the media was not carried out under the presidency of Evo Morales. Uh, there was a great deal more political or rather leniency for press. You didn't necessarily see journalists may have been harangued or subject to a public beratement, but uh, mm-hmm. you, people weren't losing their jobs. People weren't... Uh, being thrown out of their offices. And as is the case in many Latin American countries, the, and um, obviously the United States as well, the press, especially the corporate press, is owned by uh, the wealthy. It reflects the interests of, it, of its owners. And by and large, the ruling class, the elites in Bolivia are fairly happy with the current administration and and at least in my mind, don't see it as being in their best interests to rock the boat. Wyatt Reed with uh, Radio Sputnik. Thanks so much, Wyatt. Evo, Evo, el pueblo está contigo. felt the need with the election going on in Bolivia this weekend to just do an entire episode about everything going on there. The last year really in Bolivia has been uh, quite a year following the coup last November um, and the real incompetence of this coup government which has really allowed the MAS to move back into the position of winning outright, possibly even in the first round in this election. My thought would have been that they would have been too kind of dogged by these accusations of fraud to to be able to come out ahead. But that might not be the case from the polling that we're seeing. David, I was I was updating you on the polling and and showing you that it's not necessarily being widely reported or being widely reported in Bolivia, but Especially when you look at the polling, you remove the uh, blank votes, the people who say they aren't voting, you redistribute the undecided towards those who they say they lean for. The MAS, Evo's party, might actually uh, win with the required 10% in the first round, which would be interesting. Um, yeah, it would be a nice, strong repudiation yeah. if they actually managed to get it through in the first round. It, it would be. And it's just so, it's so fucked up. This whole country really has been subject to this, like, this psyop, really, about this fraud that wasn't perpetuated by the OAS in conjunction with the United States. And it's good to see the truth coming out. According to my friends in Bolivia, it's the truth is coming out. A lot of it is happening via social media. A lot of it is happening by word of mouth. The um, Prince Vendapatria, the sold-out press, is um, really going along with the government line. They are they are keen to see Carlos Mesa or one of the other candidates win. Certainly not the Moss. 
because they know where their bread is buttered. They don't want a left-wing government back in power as popularly supported as it might be. Yeah, the the press has uh, generally been complicit there, as Wyatt was telling us. And uh, on that note, he also mentioned the the degree to which uh, left-wing independent media has been uh, curtailed over there. And the fact that, like you said, words getting out despite that is uh, really a credit to the mass movement and the kind of politics they've been able to engender that is able to withstand these kinds of hits. I think that's a good point. The mass really does have a mass base and a passionate base. And members of the base of the mass have been trying to get the word out and, and trying to rebuild an independent media. We were talking about with Wyatt, there was even video after the coup last year, uh, Luis Fernando Camacho, this really this fascist, it's not even a, really an exaggeration to call him that, he's a part of this uh, group from Santa Cruz that there's video of them doing Nazi salutes, they're, they're a fascist group. There's video of him speaking with... Hold on, uh, John, but I got to stop you there. In their defense, the Roman salute has only really been out of style for about 80 years. They just need, they just haven't caught up yet. That is true. And the swastika actually had some use before the Nazis. Maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they're part Tibetan and they're uh, you know, invoking a symbol of peace. You don't know. That could be true. They're part Tibetan or they're just honoring their Roman heritage. Both totally possible. And I don't want to close the door on that. That's true. That's true. We should be understanding. We keep it fair here on Pod Me Us. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Always try to be fair and balanced. But I'd like to start with uh, kind of a brief history lesson. I'm not a complete expert on Bolivia, but I I do know a lot of people there. And I was very much... um, invested in what was going on there last year. Evo Morales has been a figure in Bolivia for some time, a public figure, a uh, union leader of the Coca Growers Union. He was involved in politics on behalf of Coca Growers and, and from way back against the influence of the United States in the country who wanted to eradicate Coca because it can be used to make cocaine. Evo Morales argued and, and still famously argues that coca is part of the cultural heritage of Bolivia. It's part of the cultural heritage of his people, of his indigenous people, and that it's not a drug in the way that they use it. And it's... It's a drug in the way that, that a cup of coffee is a drug for them. When, uh, yeah. Until you, like, boil it down and extract, uh, and, and, you know, and, and extract in significant quantities and uh, intensify it to make cocaine, it's, it's really uh, not that bad and yeah and it's for and it's yeah and it's and it's you know for domestic use right that's right all of the actual cocaine for the most part is not for domestic use these are gringos yankees that are using this drug and um paying uh you know south american cartels and people involved in the drug trade to get the drug which is, you know, whatever. That uh, sounds like wealth dis- redistribution to me. They want to give <laughs> their money to the global south to, to go nuts on cocaine. But anyway. I mean, yeah, Bolivians would, Bolivians would be growing coca for themselves, whether or not there were an external demand for it. That's right. And, and they always would have not been. be using it for cocaine for those domestic purposes. That's right. And uh, one of the things that Evo Morales really tried to do was to legitimize the local coca industry and provide other uses um, for coca. 
commercialized products, uh, coca gum, of course, coca tea, coca drinks, legitimate uses for coca other than just uh, other than it being sold to go to the drug trade. Of course, the United States has never really cared. The drug trade goes on. Uh, CIA has funded black operations through the drug trade, through drugs being sold through cartels. And so it's the United States has somewhat of an interest in the drug trade. But uh, only when, you know, the people that they want to profit off of it are profiting off of it. There is this, uh, it is said that Evo Morales was a, uh, a narco president, that he uh, uh, profited from the drug trade and people close to him. There's no proof of that. There's never been any proof of that. And Bolivia actually produces less cocaine than Peru or Colombia. But those countries are run by um people who were uh, more cooperative with the United States and uh, those tend to be more uh, right-wing governments in terms of their politics, which makes it okay. But I digress. Evo Morales has been a uh, figure in, uh, in Bolivian public life for some time, working his way up uh, through politics, forming his party, the MAS movement towards socialist party. Uh, movement towards socialism, which was a an interesting combination of indigenous people, uh, the indigenous poor and rural poor in Bolivia, along with kind of an uh, urban Marxist intelligentsia, which you love to see. His uh, vice president kind of comes from that uh, tradition. He's a, a former Marxist uh, professor and uh, guerrilla fighter, actually. Very interesting guy. But Evo has been, like I say, a figure in Bolivian public life for some time. He first ran for president in 2002. There is an interesting documentary about that election called Our Brand is Crisis, about the American political advisors who went down to Bolivia to ensure that Evo Morales did not win that election uh, because Evo Morales was critical of the United States because he was, so, he was a socialist. He was too left wing for our liking. And in fact, George Bush and George Bush's uh, State Department made it known at the time to Bolivians that uh, Evo Morales was unacceptable. So it's always nice when we, um, you know, blatantly interfere in other countries' politics as uh, we accuse Russia of doing. Not hypocritical at all. Not at all. Evo Morales <laughs> lost that 2002 election, although he did quite well. Uh, he narrowly lost it to another candidate, uh, Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada. But just three short years later, uh, three kind of, um, of chaotic years later, Evo Morales would win the presidency. His boss party would uh, rise to power with uh, about 53% of the vote and also win the Congress. He would win his next election by even more and would become a very popular president with a little bit of an international reputation. I remember he was on The Daily Show way back when. He was talking about his commitment to environmentalism as an indigenous person, as the country's first indigenous president. Um, so it's not yeah, he briefly, he, he, he had gained a significant profile for a South American leader of a country that mm. doesn't have like a significant you know, trade relationship or something like that with the United States. And uh, yeah, it was kind of, uh, at least among those who knew him, it's not like he was a household name for everybody, but among those who knew him, it was kind of like a, you know, like a folk hero. You know, it, it, even yeah. like his portrayal on The Daily Show was man of the people type of guy. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's right. He did. Um, he kind of became a figure of this uh, pink tide, this Latin American pink tide at the time. Maybe the most prominent figure after Chavez. He's a little more kind of cute and cuddly than uh, Hugo Chavez, but still very good politics. Perhaps the uh, most radical president of the pink tide after Chavez in a lot of ways and quite popular in Bolivia. He won his 2009 election with uh, 64% of the vote. He did quite well in that election. Then won his next election in uh, 2014 with a similar margin. Continued to win the Congress as well. He uh, just achieved a lot for the country economically. They had very high growth rates. And um, I think a lot of that also can be attributed to his vice president, who's a, a really smart guy, this uh, uh, Alvaro Garcia Linera. Really smart guy, a, um, like I say, a Marxist academic, uh, exactly the kind of person you could imagine never being able to be president, much less vice president here in the United States. And just really smart uh, governance all around, smart economic policy, nationalizing heavy industry, hydrocarbons, using the profits to fund social programs and to build up a surplus and uh they were even, uh, Abel was even praised by the World Bank of all people for his kind of shrewd economic management of the country. Not something you generally see coming from the World Bank, especially towards a president who is a self-avowed socialist. It's really not rocket science that when you have people who are really poor and you mm -hmm. subsidize them and give them work and they have money to spend, it tends to be a, I think, it tends to be a virtuous cycle. But when you have a situation where people have jobs and have money to spend and they're spending it, that's yeah. the virtuous cycle. That's uh, right. And also, I'm in the U.S. Where the fuck is my cable car subway system? <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's really state-of-the-art, the, art, the uh, Teleferico in La Paz. It is... It's amazing, really. I, I took it every day when I stayed in La Paz, spent almost a month in La Paz, there's nothing else like it in the world, getting this view of the city as you just fly through the air all around the city. It says it's like a subway system, but with these cable car lines, it's, it's the coolest fucking thing. And even better at night when the city is lit at night and you're, you're just flying above the city. It's, um, yeah, one of the many amazing things that Avo, I mean, you can tell why he was so popular despite the, um, really the constant bad press he got from corporate media, from the country's historical elite and uh, right wing who were loath to give him any sort of credit. It was quite awkward for people like the World Bank and the global sort of uh, Western economic establishment that Avo was achieving so much success precisely by going against the standard neoliberal model it's often yeah, his, his, yeah, a success of an alternative model is really seen as like a crack in the den. It's very serious mm -hmm. for, yeah. an, for, for the global neoliberal order as it stands to have examples yeah. of successful socialism. This is famously um, why, I mean, Nixon and Kissinger are on tape saying Allende in Chile in the 70s, the problem with him was that he was a socialist and a Marxist and he was democratically elected and therefore that gave him legitimacy. And then what happens when other uh, Latin American countries start electing these socialists? That's exactly what started to happen as the pink tide emerged in Latin America and 
why the United States, part of why they uh, were committed to undermine these uh, presidents and part of why I think we have seen what could be called Operation Condor 2.0 with this coup against Evo, with the coup against uh, Dilma and Lula in uh, Brazil. And, you know, I, I think down the road, there's a lot that's going to come out probably about ways that we've been interfering in Argentina and in oh, other yeah. countries. Uh, I, oh, Nicaragua comes Nicaragua comes to mind. Oh, too. yeah. Uh, let's not forget about Honduras either and uh, what happened to them in 2009 mm-hmm. and uh, the extradition of not the extradition, but the exiling of, of Manuel Zelaya. Mm-hmm. And the the State Department and Hillary Clinton specifically, her role in that, uh, you know, there was a State Department official in Honduras at the time who was sending back cables talking about what was going on with pretty frantic, uh, you know, urgent messages uh, about like, oh, we can, you know, what are we going to do? And Hillary Clinton's justification later on was number one, the just flat out denial of the State Department's involvement which we probably won't know for a while until someone leaks or the or, or the government just deems that enough time has passed that they don't really care if this stuff mm-hmm. is public. So there was just a flat denial. And beyond that, she claimed that the exiling of the president was the result of a perfectly legal proceeding, right. which I don't know what legal proceeding ends with the government, with with. with soldiers storming your home at midnight and putting you on a plane and forcing you out of the country that you rule well they, but, uh, they yeah that's the line to start they with. have to they always have to save face you know there has to be a uh there has to be something you can point to and you can say well this these are just the internal processes of this government you know not any interference that we're doing uh that, that we're involved in that's the way it always works um there's, there's an interesting story about it's um you know, uh, more often than not, we coup the global south, but we also cooed uh, Australia once. Uh, this kind of uh, uh, left-wing president, uh, Gal Whitlam. Uh, there's this great story. Uh, William Bloom writes about it in uh, Killing Hope about um, our efforts to uh, force that president out because he was going to go after the CIA bases um, that were you know going to be continued to uh, exist in Australia, basically, whether Australians wanted them or not. Um, uh, Evo Morales, uh, very good economic record in Bolivia, uh, very good uh, record overall. Yeah, the country wasn't immune to slowdowns on the international scene. And there have been, like, I've been in doing a little bit of research for this episode. I did come across articles that were unfriendly to him and saying, like, see, look at this dip in, in GDP and everything. Like, yeah, the whole world was uh, was in a pretty tough bind post 2008 yeah. for a bit and uh, is likewise now because of the coronavirus. They, they, um, also, he's not in office right yeah. now, but like that slowdown, yeah, really hit everyone yeah. hard. Yeah. It's, um, and you know, really can't be stressed enough how awkward it was for everyone else that Evo Morales was doing so well, because he was doing it uh, with precisely the kind of uh, methods and policy and rhetoric that is not supposed to work. Um, the United States was keen to undermine Hugo Chavez at this time. It was keen to undermine the entire pink tide. And here you had this president who was um, achieving record economic growth and really lifting up the uh, uh, historically the poorest and still the poorest country in South America. So Evo Morales was quite popular. Um, 
he decided at some point into his third term that he wanted to run for a fourth term. And um, he held a referendum to uh, obtain permission to be able to do this and narrowly lost, lost by just, uh, just about one uh, or 2%, and which was a great shock at the time. The Supreme Court in Bolivia investigated this election and, um, and they, they said politicians at all levels um, could run without term limits, that, that uh, everyone under the Bolivian constitution, uh, as far as they were concerned, uh, should be able to run without term limits. Uh, they also said that foreign interference played a major role in the referendum. Uh, there had been uh, leaked documents showing how uh, uh, USAID and other uh, U.S. aligned groups had sought to stoke instability in the country and to magnify social problems and, uh, and to create unrest uh, throughout the country through protests over the years and, and before the referendum. Uh, it's kind of the classic U.S. Uh, color revolution strategy. Uh, fund opposition groups, fund uh, prominent opposition leaders who can undermine popular governments. Uh, you saw that with this uh, Rio's de Pie sort of astroturf, quote unquote, environmental group based in the United States. The Supreme Court looked at this and they said, you know, this this was uh, a plan that was acted out in order to avoid Evo being able to win this referendum because uh, the United States was afraid of him becoming another Hugo Chavez. They were afraid of him being this uh, powerful, charismatic figure that could continue to democratically win as a socialist and a Marxist. The United States was very keen uh, to make sure that that uh, would not happen. So, but Evo supporters, many of them still wanted him to run. Uh, the Moss, unfortunately, kind of had a, it was seen as kind of a shallow bench at the time in terms of people who could run for president. There were figures who were up and coming in the party. Um, there was uh, uh, Salvatierra, uh, who was still rather young. Um, but uh, a lot of people in Evo's party wanted him to run again. They uh, sought this Supreme Court decision so that he could, and it was granted. Um, and so he began his campaign for the 2019 election. From the beginning, we know that there was interference in this campaign. There is a whole um, analysis that is offered. It's, uh, it was on this um, kind of obscure uh, blog online called Behind Back Doors. This uh, analysis was attributed to this uh, Mexican uh, kind of alternative journalist, uh, Alfredo Jolife Rame. Uh, this was attributed to him by the um, Mexican um, kind of leftist newspaper, uh, La Jornada. And uh, there was analysis and there were also audio clips that were, I don't know if you ever actually heard, David, about these audio clips that were released. Uh, that showed the Bolivian opposition planning this coup and planning elements of the coup and also their, um, their backing from the United States. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've heard these clips, David. Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah, it's, it's a whole series of uh, 15, 16 clips. They've been reported in kind of um, alternative uh, and, and leftist press throughout Latin America. They have gotten basically no attention. Um, from 
uh, more mainstream media, it's, it's, uh, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. These clips need to be analyzed and validated. Um, I've heard from people that I know in Bolivia that these voices on these clips are voices that they recognize as members of the Bolivian opposition, but um, they can be heard planning various elements of the coup. And this analysis was all released, um, it was released more than a month before the uh, events actually took place in Bolivia. And it was, um, it's apparent that this uh, journalist had some kind of intelligence source, perhaps uh, Cuban intelligence working in Bolivia, uh, was able to get these audio clips and uh, help provide this analysis. But uh, elements of the coup were talked about beforehand, such as the uh, quick count system. Um, Getting uh, the hardware for this computerized quick count, which provided an estimate on election night. And the plan was to use this to help sow confusion about the election results. Um, because the quick count is only an estimate, it comes out quickly. It's actually, they get it by taking photographs of like sheets of ballots before all the ballots are actually counted. It's an estimate, but a key uh, part of the narrative of the um, of the golpistas, of the coup plotters, was that um, the uh, election results ultimately differed from uh, what was seen in the initial quick count, um, which as we know is not a surprise as results come in from more rural areas, from more remote areas, um, the, right, the election started to shift his way as it did in every election before that. Yeah, and th this is a uh, th this was an argument that was that was being had uh, from from within Bolivia as well as you know had had from outside with the OAS uh, weighing in very strongly, uh, you know, and and crying bloody murder basically almost immediately. Uh, with uh, fortunately, there were think tanks, uh, you know, who were, the, the, that were doing their own analyses. And uh, most, most uh, famously, the uh, CEPR, Center for Economics and Policy uh, Research, which, uh, you know, gave their own sort of contemporaneous analyses and, you know, sort of called out the OAS on their exaggerations, their, their, their crying wolf over uh, developments that were entirely normal, mm -hmm. you know, OAS would go like, oh, what's with this delay? What, what's with the, you know, the difference in time of when these uh, results come in is just a, such a sign of fraud. And, you know, uh, it, you know, CEPR people would respond, no, it's just how it goes, you know, <laughs> like, you know, rural areas take a little while to get their stuff over to, uh, uh, over to be counted. And that's, uh, you know, that's how it's been uh, before as well. It's nothing new. And, you know, what it did in the moment, right, was, was just kind of muddy the picture. And for an international audience, sort of, if you're, if you're not already, uh, you know, literate in Latin American politics or in, uh, you know, uh, America's history in Latin America over the decades, uh, you know, you could be left thinking, well, who knows who's right, you know, but if you're if you're already familiar with, you know, the things that we've talked about before, like, like Operation Condor and, uh, you know, and the way the U.S. acts, I mean, watching a, an international organization largely funded by the State Department cry foul in an in election involving a left-wing government 
there's already just just that alone, no matter what they're saying, you have reason to be highly skeptical of what they have to say and see if it verifies across the board. And you also have a reason to be skeptical, not only of an international organization like that, but even our mainstream press, who is so, so glad to carry their water in the moment. Yeah, um, I think it's worth noting the OAS not only funded uh, primarily by the United States, but uh, set up initially and uh, quite openly uh, as an organization intended to undermine socialism. It was this was a Cold War institution uh, that was set up to uh, undermine any left wing governments in Latin America, and we see now that it has continued to do that. Um, but yes, yeah, yeah, there CEP- was indeed a hope. There, there was indeed a hope briefly as the, the pink tide came to fruition that there would be uh, maybe a political sea change in the OAS. Thanks to that. But that, that clearly hasn't taken place. To some extent, it did when, um, you know, when you had more leftist leaders in Latin America, when the pink tide was at its height and the right. OAS and it, was yeah, made. Came and went. The tide came and yeah. went. <laughs> it came and went. I mean, in large part, it went because of uh, U.S. interference, like I say, as I think we're going to continue to see. That's certainly the case in Brazil and yeah. now in Bolivia. Um, it, it came and it went because of U.S. interference and because of lawfare and because of um, uh, active uh persecution and undermining against me of these pink tide leaders. But uh, CEPR did great work. Uh, they're often criticized by the right. They say, oh, this this organization always says these things about these pink tide governments. They, you know, they always said um, uh, they always said nice things about Hugo Chavez. Uh, but this um, their stance on the election was also was backed up by uh, research at the University of, of Michigan. It was ultimately backed up by the New York Times, who had to kind of save face and admit that the OAS's report was uh, not really accurate. Of course, they did it with all kind of caveats and all kind of reasoning to say why, you know, Avo was really this bad authoritarian anyway. I, I just wanted to weigh in on that because I, I remember when that article came out, which was just a couple of months ago, I think it was early July, uh, where they basically just, uh, uh, it, rather than acknowledging their own failure of coverage, they basically claimed like, oh, look at that. The OAS, not even the OAS lied to everyone or the OAS was, uh, you know, clearly duplicitous and, in, in, uh, and, and, you know, had an agenda here. But like, oh, look at that. The OAS's analysis wasn't quite right. It was like, uh, you know, they, they said it had, now everyone's having second thoughts. It's like, no, the OAS was towing a ridiculous line and you carried water for them in the moment. Yeah. And what bothers me so much about that is, is that, you know, what kind of reporters do they have at the New York Times that they are so historically illiterate uh, uh, when it comes to Latin America that they see this thing playing out in real time and they see the OAS making statements and they don't think back at all to any of the cases that we're talking about, about Operation Condor, about what happened in Chile, about what happened in Honduras in 2009, about what happened in uh, Guatemala in the 50s. I mean, th- like we're talking about a history of, of a pattern of behavior that goes back like 70 years that yeah. should really inform the first of all, journalists who are covering these kinds of things should be aware of number one. And that two should inform how they interpret uh, a new case where something similar looks like it could be happening. 
you know, right. I, um, I ended up I ended up writing a, an article um, in um, in November as this thing was kind of playing out. And I was seeing the New York Times coverage coming out and they were just totally incredulous about everything. And I yeah. decided to go back to check on what their coverage of coups past had been like. And, you know, I, I, I was kind I kind of was fishing for dynamite <laughs> with dynamite, basically, because mm. on each one of these cases, I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to find. But I had a pretty strong inkling that I would find a similarly, you know, clueless and credulous coverage. And I did. I looked at their uh, their Chile coverage in 1973 after Pinochet on sep- that was uh, on September 11th, 1973, as early as like a week later or even less, they had this glowing profile of Pinochet and uh, just a profile of the man himself uh, calling him. I think the phrase was tough, but fair and with mm. a sense of humor. And like by that point, he had already it's good, for, it's good for your fascist to have a sense of humor. I mean, really, by that point, Pinochet had already started rounding up people by the thousands into a soccer stadium where they were, you know, held for ages, tortured and and just uh, summarily executed. And this is the kind of the the entities that we have to cover this stuff are entities that are known to be that are that are that exist in our minds as you know independent newspapers. They're the biggest newspapers in the country. And so when you read an art well, so when people generally read articles uh, in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, or the Wall Street Journal, what have you, uh, they don't really you, you don't really get a sense that you're reading something that is uh, subject to pressures and influence by the government. But that is exactly what is going on. I think you know people who write for the New York Times, they're uh, smart enough to be able to write well, but not intellectually curious enough to. Uh, question the U.S. State Department or question mainstream narratives about uh, how the United States, you know, does good in the world and maybe try our best to do good. You know, Chomsky writes about this in Manufacturing Consent. Uh, Michael Parenti writes about it in a book called Inventing Reality. Yeah. So getting back to AVO, uh, this analysis, unfortunately, just uh, was not reported in in mainstream media these audio clips weren't analyzed um except for in argentina in argentina this stuff was actually reported and even this uh behind back doors website was reported um and it's um maybe we'll link to that as well there's this really interesting reporting that was done in argentina um and I think that's one of the reasons as the coup went down in Bolivia, the coup regime was very keen to uh, get Argentine journalists out of the country uh, by any means possible because Argentine journalists at the time were reporting the the reality of this as a coup. Uh, Argentina, famously a very, um, some would say kind of a, uh, I don't know if I should say nationalistic, but a very, um, uh, they're a very, they're a proud country and they, um, are not afraid of the United States for the most part and uh, really reported on this as a US-backed coup at the time. Uh, the Añez, this new Añez junta at the time, really just did everything they could to provoke hate against Argentines and racism. And there's video of these Argentine journalists being attacked on the street and harassed. And it's ultimately, they were forced out of the country, ultimately. They were forced to flee the country. Um, along with uh, many other great journalists. Um, 
Bolivia TV, a uh, state uh, television channel, was shut down uh, very early in the coup. This is a classic playbook of Latin American coups. You shut down any media that reports the reality of the situation. They uh, forcibly shut down radio stations owned by unions and um, other independent outlets that were reporting this as a coup. They were very quick to do that so that the population wouldn't have these resources. Um, and, and so that's what happened. This coup regime was very quick to consolidate power. Uh, and then you had the, uh, the massacres at Sincata and Sacaba um, uh, in Cochabamba and, and in La Paz, these massacres that were done uh, very early in this coup regime to put down the resistance, to put down this uh, primarily peaceful uh, nonviolent resistance in the form of blockades, in the form of protests. So the, the coup regime was very quick to consolidate power. And um, again, all of this analysis, all of the, the just the multi-layered nature of this coup is talked about in this uh, uh, Alfredo Olife Rame analysis that uh, came out, like I say, sometime before the coup actually took place. There was talk about the social media strategy. There was funding that was given to this uh, group in Washington, D.C., CLS Strategies, which had worked on behalf of, um, of the right wing in Bolivia. Historically, they worked against Evo in this 2002 election. A lot of these people from this organization, they ran a social media strategy of literally uh, of interfering on social media in the way that we accuse Russia of doing, uh, of uh, operating these botnets and these uh, disingenuous accounts uh, with fake news, uh, calling Evo Morales a drug dealer with uh, photoshopped images of him with famous uh, drug dealers, um, with these just astroturfed uh, opinions from ostensibly uh, just your average Bolivian people. And they got caught doing it at the time. Famously, there was this mass message that was uh, retweeted by and, and tweeted out by a lot of these accounts, this famous tweet, uh, friends from everywhere in Bolivia, there is no coup in kind of this broken English trying to convince people that what happened was not a coup because it was, it was kind of historic in a way at the time you had people like Bernie and people like AOC saying that this is a coup that's going down there. You eventually had Elizabeth Warren calling it a coup as well. Uh, you had Ilan Omar calling it a coup and really- Yeah, because anyone-, anyone American uh, imperialism that was going on. Of course, because anyone with any historical literacy of, yep. you know, even just a few of the cases that we're talking about, uh, you know, of which there are dozens that the US has intervened in this way, you know, any knowledge of any of these things, you would look at it with at the very least a skeptical eye. And for these people who- are really, you know, even more well-versed and educated on this uh, than maybe even you and I are, it's, it's beyond all doubt. It's, it's, it's yeah. apparent. Yeah, it's beyond all doubt. And even if you didn't have this fairly, you know, I think it's somewhat ironclad proof at this time, particularly the audio clips. Uh, yeah, this is a, a U.S.-backed operation. I think we can say with certainty it is a CIA-backed coup. There's uh, this analysis, this behind-back-doors analysis talks about the role of the uh, United States Embassy, uh, where a lot of this was planned, where uh, probably a lot of these uh, meetings were held with these opposition uh, members. Um, 
There is also a role interestingly played by Argentine intelligence at the time. This was when Argentina was ruled by the right wing uh, Mauricio Macri. Um, and the uh, intelligence services there were used in service of this coup. It's really just a fascinating uh, analysis. I think that's the long and short of it as uh, far as the coup that went down last year. And, and ever since, it has been a consolidation of power on behalf of the coup regime, this off and on repression, uh, arresting people for uh, posting memes against the government for running meme pages. Um, just constant violence and threats of violence against leftists and people campaigning for the MAS in Bolivia. These uh, just these right wing shock groups uh, from Santa Cruz and from these uh, so-called civic committees in different uh, cities being used as as the shock troops to uh, threaten violence. And it's uh, that's a big aspect of this coup that's discussed in this uh, behind back doors was the strategy of, of threatening members of the MAS and their family members to uh, to make them resign. There were several people in the chain of secession after Evo Morales who had to resign before Añez could semi-constitutionally take power. It was still unconstitutional because there was no quorum in the Congress at the time, but uh, the Supreme Court was made to um, allow her to become president anyway. Uh, John, but, how can you even claim that there was no legitimacy? Did you see how big the Bible she swore herself in on was? Well, that's very true. Yeah, it doesn't get more legitimate than that. That must have been a freaking thirty-pound Bible, man. That's this is that's like, true. It's like something out of the Lord of the Rings. This like spell book or something, freaking one and a half feet wide, leather bound. I mean, that's as legit as a swearing-in gets. I mean, clearly some uh, divine legitimacy there. Um, Clearly, <laughs> and we of course know that the you know these right wing coup regimes always do things by the books, right? Any government supported by the United States, they would never act by the good book. Yeah, by well, by the good book in this person's case, really just the most insane people and just the most um, just loathsome people in the country running it now. Anya's famously uh, having tweeted about uh, the indigenous people's uh, satanic rituals. And, I'm going to uh, call it now. I'm going to call tweet. it now. An Anya's is the next Trump wife. I'm calling it now. She is. Um, she's definitely interesting in sort of this pantheon of, uh, of right wing leaders in South America. Now I've seen it being called the uh, brown tide, uh, which is an interesting metaphor. But people like <laughs> Bolsonaro, uh, people like uh, Lenny Moreno, um, people like the uh, current president of Chile. Uh, Añez is probably the dumbest of the bunch. And, you know, that tends to happen when you put religious fanatics uh, in charge of government. Um, just massively unpopular. Her uh, presidency has just been a shit show. One scandal after another. Uh, people in the government profiting from, uh, uh, from the sale of ventilators for COVID money being put into private pockets because of that uh you've just had it's just been one scandal after another really and, i'm just uh, glad I i'm just glad we live in a country where none of that happens right yeah it's um yeah the government makes sure that everyone here gets all the ventilators they need right uh, and they're not personally profiting well no no one would ever like personally profit over that only happens in these uh you know no I mean, could you imagine the uproar if we found out that, you know, Donald Trump was, you know, investing in Regeneron? Uh, 
Mm. Or if he, uh, you know, if people were staying at his hotels, if dignitaries and uh, other political figures were staying at his hotels throughout his throughout his presidency. Um, uh, anyway, I, I shudder to think it's been one scandal after another during this Anya's presidency, which is why she was so unpopular and ultimately had to drop out. Um, so that the right wing could consolidate in some way against Evo Morales. They're still not totally consolidated because uh, Luis Fernando Camacho, this uh, fascist nutjob from Santa Cruz, refuses to drop out, even though he's polling in the single digits. He's said that, you know, as we were talking about with Wyatt, he said that he thinks he can win in the first round. I'm not sure how he thinks that unless there is going to be, unless he actually foresees a uh, a military coup or something along those lines. He read it. He, some people he, worry about. He read a prophecy in the Sifa Bible. Yeah, yeah. Um, perhaps Luis Fernando Camacho is from the uh, famously kind of independent uh, secessionist East uh, Santa Cruz. They tried to secede earlier in Evo's presidency. Uh, this was something else we learned from WikiLeaks. The United States played a major role in financing all of this, uh, trying to convince uh, these regions in the east of the country to secede and to undermine Evo Morales' power. And uh, we even know from WikiLeaks that the United States anticipated the possibility of Evo Morales being assassinated at the time. Uh, if you read the documents, it really sounds like they expected that to happen. Uh, like maybe they were even planning for that. And uh, fortunately, the pink tide uh, had the strength at the time that uh, these left wing leaders throughout Latin America were able to uh, come together and put up a show of force against the secessionists and uh, reaffirm Evo's legitimate power in the country. Uh, and so the United States failed in overthrowing Morales. George Bush failed just as he failed to overthrow Hugo Chavez in 2002. In fact, Evo was only strengthened after this. And in some ways, you know, like Chavez, he was even probably radicalized even more after this U.S. attempt of uh, imperialism to overthrow him. Uh, so that's where we're at. Um, the election is tomorrow, assuming I actually am able to edit this down and get it out today as we're recording it. Uh, the latest is that a lot of people at uh, Bolivia's, this is just as of last night, a lot of people um, in the administration of Bolivia's National Bank have suddenly resigned. It's not clear why that is. Maybe there's some scandal that is about to come out. It could come out. It's, um, it's hard to say, but it's an interesting development. Uh, things are going to be changing pretty rapidly, I think. Um, and we will get results uh, as early as tomorrow evening. So we'll see what happens. I'll be paying attention for sure. And uh, I think we'll be following the, up on this. Yeah, yeah. I'll be checking. I'll be checking in tomorrow, uh, seeing how this turns out, hoping for the best. Excellent. Yeah. And um, I think we'll have someone, uh, maybe maybe a few people to speak with about events there as well. Um, this has been another episode of Pod Me Us. Uh, where we agitate against the CIA and U.S. imperialism. We love doing it. It's a lot of fun. We love it. Uh, made possible by listeners like you, or um, perhaps in the future made possible. Uh, we're still releasing these episodes for free for now. 
just because we enjoy doing it. I enjoy doing it. But um, really you know, good uh, venting session is, is, is why I do this. It's very cathartic. It's very cathartic. And um, I had a cathart. I had a really big one. <laughs> um, yeah. So that is a brief history of Bolivian politics over the last two decades. And um, I think we're about to see uh, even more political history made one way or another, clearly. So we'll be staying tuned and uh, we'll be keeping you updated. If you like what you hear, give us a rating, give us a subscribe on Apple Podcasts, uh, follow us on SoundCloud, follow this us on Spotify. If Spotify will hurry up and actually approve this podcast so it is in their directory um and look us up on facebook um facebook page should be ready to go soon um uh, i'm john miles this is my uh, david my good friend david Mizuki. <laughs> wait let's do it again let's do that part again we're <laughs> for each other um, where i'm not like you know doing the audio equivalent of like shoving my head into the frame while you're doing yeah. a video um, let's try that again i'm john miles <laughs> and i'm david mizuki and uh this has been pod me us thanks Nailed for listening. It. you should say ciao it sounds very italian ciao a tutti bacione love it okay great <laughs> pure gold de los llanos orientales a las cumbres andinas del madre de dios al pilcumayo Todos juntos somos Bolivia y seremos muchos más.